You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome to Thrive. It's good to have you here today. We are in our second week of a series called Identity. And we're looking through the Gospel of John and seeing how um, different characters, different case studies, um, are encountering Jesus throughout this gospel. Um, John's gospel, unlike all the other four go- or the other three gospels, has more one-on-one conversations with Jesus than any other. And in each of these, uh, you discover that they're really about identity issues. Who am I? What am I about? What's, uh, what's important? Am I my track record? Am I my pedigree? Am I my race and background? What makes who I am and what I am? And so we're going to be looking at that today, again, here uh, with a person named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Now, um, why the series? Because, well, I've noticed our culture is consumed by questions of identity. Uh, People are always trying to figure out who they are, where they fit in, um, discovering who the real me is. And um, I guess we're all still trying to figure that out, right? (laughs) <laughs> I still am at my age. Um, <clears throat> but I think what we find out, too, about identity is it's a very complex issue. And so each of these characters has a different aspect of it that they're struggling with. Um, so a man named Klein Snodgrass wrote a pretty good book on all of this. And he says, what is identity itself? It's this. Identity is the sum of everything that pertains to us and shapes us. Identity is the sense of being and self-understanding that frames our actions, communicates to others who we are, and sets the, rec- the agenda for our acts. Nicodemus, now, as we are looking at John chapter 3, he understood all of these things. He was raised in a culture and at a time everything was more or less established, or as I will say, fabricated for him. It was kind of set up. But when he encounters Jesus, when he hears of him, when he sees and hears the rumors of what he's done and actually witnessed probably a couple of these things, it shook him to the core because he didn't quite understand how this all fit together. And so all of a sudden, his world that seemed so predictable and stable was turned upside down by Jesus not quite fitting in. You know, um, that can happen. There's been probably times in your life when you've either moved to a new location and all of a sudden you're around different people and things and all of a sudden everything feels like, well, wait a minute, I thought I knew who I was. Um, Happens a lot in college, by the way. You get away from your parents for the first time, you're living on your own, and all of a sudden it's like, well, who am I? Am I just what my parents want me to be? Am I, you know, what other people expect? And um, what I loved myself about college is the fact that I could leave high school behind. High school was not the most fun time for me. I don't know about for you. It was a very tribal place, and I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. And so when I got to college, I was able to be John. Nobody knew my background, my backstory. I could be who I was and how I was, and still I had those questions. Nicodemus is probably at the peak of his, quote, career, and prominent, and yet he's having questions about this. We're going to read now about this encounter with Jesus in John chapter 3, and uh, we are starting, I believe, in verse 1 and going through verse 15. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is everyone with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So that's our text today this case study of Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus at night. And we're going to learn these three points. We're going to look at these three, which is a mistaken identity, a fabricated identity, and then a centered identity. The mistaken identity is the fact that Nicodemus does not understand who Jesus is. He has no clue. He can't figure him out. Jesus doesn't fit into the categories that Nicodemus has. He calls him a rabbi and a teacher because that's all he can think of. And yet at the same time, Jesus seems to kind of break the rules. He doesn't fit. He, uh, he does miracles and they must be from God, but why? And then um, he doesn't follow the Pharisees. He's not a part of any group that Nicodemus can put him in and pigeonhole him in. He's kind of on his own. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. He touches lepers. He does all sorts of things that seem to go against the purity laws and all the things that Nicodemus set himself up as a staunch supporter, how he fabricated his life and had everything just in place. And Jesus is just kind of blowing it out of the water. <clears throat> and so he comes to Jesus Notice when he came. When did Nicodemus meet with Jesus? At night. Why would you meet him at night? So he doesn't get seen. That tells you something right there. Timothy Keller, um, he says that Nicodemus probably came at night because what Nicodemus was really doing was backroom politicking. We've got enough of that going on. Um, and this is what he says to Jesus. Just, just understand it as a bit of a schmooze, okay? John 3, 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus, you seem like a great guy. You'd be great for our cause. The Pharisees need somebody like you on our side. Right now, we've kind of lost a little support because the people think we're just too uptight and judgmental and strict and all that stuff. And Israel is kind of going to hell in a handbag at this point in time. And so, but if you, someone like you, come onto our side, um, you know, we can get somewhere. Will you? Jesus kind of cuts through all of that stuff, though. 
it's really interesting. If you read this, all of a sudden, Jesus just starts cutting to the chase. He doesn't say, oh, Nicodemus, thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be, have, to be recognized by such a prominent figure like you because Nicodemus was prominent. He was at the top of the pyramid in Israel at that point in time. He was a Pharisee. He was wealthy. He was a scholar. He was part of the ruling class of the Sanhedrin. We know all of these things. He was male. He was older. He, was, he had every position, everything to his name. But Jesus doesn't count any of that stuff. And he says to him, just unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. What? What? Um, and Nicodemus doesn't see who's in front of him. Nicodemus cannot, he mistakes Jesus and thinks he's a teacher. He's just a rabbi. That's all he can see. There's a man named Morton Adler, I, Mortimer Adler. He has written this, that more consequences of thought and action follow the affirmation or denial of God than for answering any other basic question. Um, I think I could uh, go one step further than Adler here in the sense that it's not just that you recognize there must be a God that has put the universe together, but the recognition of what kind of God, what God is like, matters more than anything else. I mean, um, just to believe in God, do you, you realize that 90, 95% of Americans still believe in God, but ask them a little further, what kind of God is it, you know? What, what makes God tick? What ticks God off? What does he want? Where, wh how involved is he? The philosopher's God, the God of just, you know, abstractions and creation. And if God is just the person who created and let things run, and then at the end of time, at some point, he'll judge or evaluate, you know, give you your uh, grade at the end of the semester, your life. If that's all that God is, what kind of a God is that? It seems like that is almost the God that Nicodemus thinks of, that God is the creator, that God is the lawgiver, and um, I keep the rules, and then God will reward me. Well, no wonder he looks at Jesus as just a teacher. Can you just clarify a few points for me, Jesus? Give me a few tips, some good advice. And that's what a lot of people think God is all about. Just tell me a few things that I need to know, and then I'll spit them back at you, and everything's good. But that assumes an awful lot about my position. And Nicodemus is assuming an awful lot about his position, as if all I need is guidance, as if all I need is a little more information, as if all I need is a little help here and there someone to be a step ahead of me. And Jesus says, I'm not that. That's not all I am. If that's all you see in me, you're going to be a lost cause. Why does Nicodemus mistake who Jesus is? Because Nicodemus has a fabricated identity. Nicodemus, as I said, is in this wonderful position of being at the top of the top, the best of the best, 
When he encounters Jesus here, he is in a position of power, he is in a position of prominence, and he goes at night only because he's afraid anybody might see him. He doesn't want to sully his reputation. He's trying to figure him out. You know what's so fascinating is next week we're going to be in uh, John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, we meet the polar opposite individual. Here, Nicodemus is named. He's a male. He's at the top of the social pyramid. He's religious. He's moral. He is scholarly. Next, we meet a woman unnamed, a Samaritan, an outsider. Jesus meets her. He's not, she's not seeking him. She doesn't even know who he is. At, in the middle of the day, not at night. By the way, she gets it. Nicodemus, at the end of John's uh, gospel here uh, in John 13, we don't know where Nicodemus is at. There's no, oh, yes, Jesus, you must be the Messiah, or anything that comes up. So it's going to be an interesting contrast. So Nicodemus, he's got it all, and he's clueless. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Nicodemus asked the question, wait a minute, born again, how can this be? He doesn't understand it. And Jesus turns to him and says this. This is what's amazing. And I want to focus on this just a little bit this morning. Are you the teacher of Israel, Jesus says, and yet you do not understand these things? How can it be, Nicodemus, that you know the whole history of your people and haven't figured out how messed up everybody is, that we have to be born again, that the first is not enough. Somehow, Nicodemus is reading the entire scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, from the five books of Moses through the law and the prophets, and he's coming to the conclusion all he needs is instruction. All he needs is to do a little better. And he fabricates his own identity based on rule keeping and laws and trying to be good and prominent in society. And Jesus says, that's a house of cards. It falls apart every time. And can't you see it? Can't you see, Nicodemus, you, you're supposed to be a teacher of Israel, but you don't look back in the book of Genesis and see right after Adam and Eve are out of the garden, the firstborn son that they have is... Cain. Does it turn out good? No, he's a murderer. And then the next real prominent event is when the whole world seems to be filled with murderers, and then God chooses Noah, and we think, oh, well, maybe Noah's going to be good until after the flood. And didn't you realize what happens after the flood is Noah gets drunk and is naked, and he curses his own son Ham, and he blames somebody else for his drunkenness and nakedness. He's not even good. And the rest of the scriptures, you can go through every story in the Bible, and you will find again and again failure and fault lines and brokenness. Moses is a murderer. David is an adulterer and a murderer. The best of the best are the worst of the worst. And time and again, things fall apart. You think it's good enough? You don't need just reformation. You don't need a reformulation. You don't need education. You don't need a little improvement, Nicodemus. You need a whole new you. 
You need to be born again. And haven't you read the prophets, Nicodemus? A prophet like, oh, Ezekiel, who says in Ezekiel 36, God's promise, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statute and be careful to obey my rules. Don't you get it, Nicodemus? That's what being born again is. You need a new you. Your whole identity, Nicodemus, has been built up trying to just improve yourself to be a better human being, to be pious and upright and godly. You're trying to always be someone you are not. That's not you. Nobody is. Haven't you learned from your failings? Haven't you learned from the failings of Israel? Haven't you listened to the prophets? A fabricated identity. You know, we all do it. We all do it. We all try to look better than we actually are. <laughs> That's who we are as human beings. And, and we might think, well, at least I'm virtuous. At least I'm trying. At least I'm being a little better than. Well, uh, there's a, uh, one of my favorite philosophers is named Soren Kierkegaard. Any of you heard of him before? Yeah. And... Um, I think he's the father of existentialism, is what they call him. And he basically uh, wrote a number of books and um, realized that the opposite, he was a Christian, and he said the opposite of sin or rebellion is not virtue. You know, that's what basically Nicodemus thinks. Well, if I'm a good person, then I'm good. If I do good things, I'll become good. And that's the opposite of being a sinner. No. The opposite of sin uh, Soren Kierkegaard said, is not, vir uh, is not virtue, but faith, trust in someone else's righteousness outside of myself. And that's why uh, Soren Kierkegaard went as far as to say um, that sin is building your identity on anything but God. Because uh, Soren Kierkegaard was going like, somebody like Nicodemus, a Pharisee, basically kept most of the rules on the outside. And yet Jesus doesn't see them as being virtuous and wonderful. He doesn't pat them on the back and say, okay, just do harder, you know, do a little more. You're almost there. He says they are as far away from the kingdom of God as anyone. Whenever we try to fabricate our own identity, based on our moral track record. It's the house of card that falls apart. I don't care how good society, I don't care what awards you might get, humanitarian and elsewhere. You could get the Nobel Peace Prize for what you do. You might start building yourself up, but on the inside, you know it's a house of cards. It's going to fall apart. It's not good enough. Well, John, that's great. I get it. But at the same time, at least Nicodemus was trying. Doesn't he get a little, you know? And by the way, what are you trying to push on us as our identity? Because I've 
seen Christianity, I've seen what Christians talk about, and it seems such a conformist thing, and you're telling me instead of having, I think I need to be myself, and I need to be sincere and honest and all that stuff, but if you're just telling me it's, it's something imposed on me, no, I am not. Not at all. You see, I think Klein Snodgrass in that book that I've mentioned gets it right. The gospel seeks to make us fully human, the humans God intended us to be. When you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you understand what he is trying to give to you, instead of trying to fabricate an identity, you'll start to become the person God has always intended you to be from the inside out. Instead of a confining identity, you're going to get a centered identity, an identity centered on what Jesus does for you. Jesus says um, at the end, it's kind of an odd phrase. You kind of go like, huh, maybe. I don't quite get this. In John 3, 14 to 15, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And I know I cut it off at the most probably well-known verse in the Bible. Right after that, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Um, but I think what is being said here is just as profound. Now, you're going like, what is this serpent thing going on here? Well, it's from the book of Numbers. And I think Jesus is picking this one out saying, hey, you know the scriptures, right? Somehow, Nicodemus knew the scriptures. He knew them. He had memorized them. He understood all the implications of them, sort of, but not how they functioned. It would be like somebody in anatomy class knowing all the muscles and the insertions and the joints and the ligaments and the bones of the body, but he cannot figure out how a person can actually walk. Or someone who studies about swimming and has read all the books on swimming and knows all the Olympic records for swimming and all the famous swimmers in history, but never jumps into the water and doesn't know how to swim himself. That's Nicodemus. He knows all these facts, but somehow the penny hasn't dropped. He hasn't put it together. And Jesus says, you know, the children of Israel were just like you. You are just part of them. And when they were in the wilderness, they complained and defied and rebelled against God. And God allowed these snakes to come into their uh, encampment. And whoever got bit, it was poisonous. They were ready to die. But then Moses doesn't magically have some, you know, like take his staff and all of a sudden all the snakes are gone. Moses manufactures a snake, a bronze serpent, places it on a pole the same word that's used for cross, by the way, in the Hebrew scriptures, and places it in the center of the camp. And anybody who looks on it because of the promise of God lived. And that's who I am. I'm not a teacher. I'm going to become that snake on the pole. I'm not an instructor. I don't point the way. I am the way. You know, what's fascinating to me is the fact that already the snake idea goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent is the one who, uh, you know, tempts Eve and Adam, and they fall uh, into that rebellion. And God does not magically snap his oh, heavenly fingers or whitewash the whole situation. God 
takes on the evil of the world by becoming the evil itself. And Jesus Christ becomes the snake, becomes the center of all of those things. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, he became sin who knew no sin himself so that you might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus Christ upon the cross said, I am not going to simply teach you or give you or tell you how to fabricate a better identity. I'm going to give you mine. I'm going to so be identified with your sin that I take it away from you. And I'm going to give you my identity as a son, as the righteous one, as the beloved of the Father. And that's who you are. You know, what's fascinating is that the Bible says this phrase again and again in the New Testament, that you are in Christ. Not that Christ is in you, but you are in Christ. You have been placed into his identity. You are wrapped in him. You are buried with him in baptism. You are raised to new life in Christ. He is your identity. He is the center of your being, and that creates a new you. And you might go like, well, that's great, but Jesus has taken all the butts away. Every one of those excuses. Well, but you know, I've, I blew it again. It's taken away. It's on the cross. But I, I, I was, I'm not that. It's taken away. It's on the cross. There is nothing in all creation now that can ever separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, now, I shared with uh, some of the FGCU students a couple weeks ago, and we're going to be starting this Wednesday. And um, at the end of our time together on Wednesday nights, we're going to have a time of affirmation. That is, taking what God says of us and then speaking it back. So that Because what I've noticed among um, not just the college students, but all of us, uh, really, is that we um, often talk to ourselves in pretty uh, demeaning ways. And you might not even recognize it, but you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and it's like, oh my goodness. You know, the first words out of my mouth about myself is not necessarily pretty. But then, um, or th through the day, you, you flub up, you don't quite, oh, how could you, I can't believe I, and all you're doing is lecturing yourself. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe you don't even recognize it because it happened so automatically. And often those tapes or those recordings, if you want to call them, are really from childhood where you've heard things from parents and other adult figures that basically belittled you and shamed you and put you in your place, none of which is what God says of you in Jesus Christ. And it's time to affirm what God has said of you and your identity in Christ and what that means. And all the buts, well, are taken away by what Christ has done for you. There is no exceptions. There's no loopholes. There's no... It's kind of like that's why um, we had a discussion. I think, Matt, you were there and maybe Victor was too. We had a student come up to our table on, what was it... I don't even remember what day of the week it was anymore. Wednesday, Thursday? And he was asking about, do you believe in limited atonement or unlimited atonement? And it's like, is that what he's really asking? I'm just kind of like, okay, a student who asked. And, and, and I would say unlimited because there is no, uh, there's nobody here who could say, but, but that might not apply to me. 
okay? When Jesus says, for God so loved the world, you're included in it, okay? There's no exception. It didn't say, for God loved part of the world or some of the world. And that's why I love this book. Um, you might want to pick it up. It's called The Cure by John Klein and others. He has a question in it. It's really kind of a metaphor all the way through. And it's this whole idea of where do you find your identity? Is it in your performance and is it your good intentions? Or is it in the place of grace? And he asks this question in the book. What if there was a place so safe that the worst of me could be known and I would discover that I would not be loved less but more in the telling of it. That place is Jesus. You are in Christ. There's nothing you can say to anyone in Christ or to Christ himself that would diminish his love for you. And we want Thrive to be that place as well. Where the worst of us not always. I'm not going to share, you know, I'm not going to treat the, the sermon as a personal confessional and tell you all my crap all the time. You don't need that. It's not. But there's no need to play games, no facade. You've got doubts, questions, struggles. We all do. We're all broken. We're all a mess. But it's a safe place to be loved, to understand God's forgiveness and grace. And that transforms everything. It really does. Nicodemus needed that. Somehow, he wasn't buying it yet. We're not sure if he did at that point in John 3, or it was just later in the Gospels he gets there. There's another man, I think, that's very similar to Nicodemus, who lived about 500 years ago, and his name was Martin Luther. And um, it's amazing how he describes his own conversion his own time where he came to understand the gospel. He said it this way, though I lived as a monk without reproach, he could have said Pharisee there because they're basically the same. I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. In other words, Luther tried to do everything to try to get God to like him, to love him, and he could never do enough. So I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. I graciously longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. And the word justice there is the same word, dikaiosune, or righteousness. And I, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just will live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is the righteousness by which through grace and sure mercy God justifies us through faith. In other words, Jesus takes the justice upon himself on the cross and I am justified and righteous because of him. And thereupon, look at what he describes. I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. There you go. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus offers to Nicodemus to take place of his fabricated identity 
to one centered upon his death and resurrection. That's the cure. Let's pray. Lord God, today we remember many, uh, many situations in our lives. I just pray, Lord, you know how difficult it is for all of us. We try to figure out who we are and what we are. We look at ourselves, but Lord, I think you know we need to look to you. As the serpent was placed on the pole in the wilderness, so you were lifted up from the earth. And as we look to you, we find out who we are. Those who are forgiven and loved and accepted and welcomed. We pray that Thrive becomes such a safe place that the telling of any of our brokenness to anyone else just becomes another reason that we are loved even more deeply and understand grace even more firmly. Lord God, today we also lift up to you, uh, uh, Louisiana, as this morning, this afternoon, they are facing uh, Hurricane Ida. We pray for your protection and peace upon them and move us in whatever way to help. Lord, we lift up to you uh, Afghanistan for the 13 uh, in our military who have lost their lives with the hundreds uh, others that have lost, Lord, as well as the thousands being uh, uh, taken out of the country right now. We pray for your protection. And we pray, Lord, that uh, this disruption in the lives of so many, Lord, somehow that they are not just safe politically, um, or, um, but that they, uh, they find you through this process, this disruption in their lives. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to welcome uh, refugees. You say you are a father of the fatherless and that you want us to care for the foreigner um, and the poor and the orphan in our midst. And we pray, Lord God, that we as a, the people of God would show such welcome and hospitality as you would see fit. Lord, we lift up to you our campus ministry. We lift up to you our congregation at this time. We pray, Lord, for the opportunities that we've had at FGCU and in this community that you would open the doors even more. You know, it's been a challenging year and a half through COVID, and we are still struggling, Lord, to come out the other side. We pray, Lord, that you are working your will in all of these things. All this we lift up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.